Is there a desire in you to not just attend revival, but live in revival? Welcome to the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Saldivar. I've been in revival for the last 10 years, as well as traveling and being a part of many revivals throughout the United States. I'm going to be sharing with you how to live a radical lifestyle of revival on a daily basis. We are jumping in to the book of Romans, part six, New King James. I would encourage you, follow along. It's going to be exciting tonight. Follow along in your Bible. Open up to the book of Romans and follow with us. We're going to be starting in chapter 11, but I'm going to give you a bit of an overview. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the believers in Rome. It's a very important book because it covers the entire counsel of God in one book. It goes over all the essentials of the faith and then gives us, which I'm excited to go into tonight, practical application on how you can walk this thing out. So tonight we're just going to talk about not just doctrine, which the first chapter will be, but we're going to be talking about practical application tonight. I'm going to catch some of you up that are just jumping on for the first time. Last time we did this, we did chapter 9 and 10. Chapter 9, Paul discussed his anguish over Israel's rejection of the Messiah. If you didn't know, Israel is God's chosen people. And when Jesus came, they rejected Jesus. They rejected the Messiah. They thought that they were going to be saved by their works and not by faith. And so righteousness is attained by faith. It is not attained by works. And so this is what Paul in the la- in the first 10 chapters of Romans is trying to tell us. It's not about the law. It's not about works. We're saved by faith. It, that's what God counts us as to righteousness. So Paul's going to discuss that he's in anguish, that they've rejected the Messiah, and he's in so much anguish. Paul says, probably one of the boldest statements in the Bible. He says, I would forever be cut off from Christ. I would be willing to go to hell to save my Jewish people, the people of Israel, God's chosen people that I love so much. Paul was willing to be separated from Christ. Obviously, God wouldn't take him up on that offer, and that's not something we can do biblically, but Paul's expressing his anguish over the fact that Israel has rejected the Messiah. And he's going to say that very, very bold thing. He's going to also talk about in chapter nine, divine election. And basically, if you want to know about divine election, it's this. God has the right to be God. God can basically do what God wants to do. He doesn't need permission. He doesn't need someone to tell him what to do or manager. Who are we to say who God can use and God can't use? That's the essence of divine election that Paul describes. Paul also talks about how man's works is not a substitute for faith in Jesus Christ Only those that put their faith in Jesus will be saved. And those are what the Bible calls the remnant. Okay. And I hope I have the remnant tonight. Type one. If you are the remnant that says, I am not saved by works. I'm putting my faith in Jesus. Chapter 10, Paul says, Israel had zeal for God, but their zeal wasn't based on knowledge because they rejected the gospel. So there's many people in the church that are zealous, but they're zealous for the wrong reasons and the wrong things. And their zeal is not based on knowledge. It's not enough to be passionate about God. It's not enough to be excited about God. We need knowledge. We need to be excited about the right things. We need to have proper doctrine, which is why we're doing these. We know these get the least amount of views. We know that these aren't the big live streams where we talk about deliverance, but we need these type of live streams, verse by verse, Bible doctrine, so that we can have knowledge, so that we're zealous for God, but no one can accuse us and say, oh, those are crazy charismatics. They only know the spirit. No, we've been through every verse in the book of Acts on stream. We've been through every book in the book of uh, every verse, I'm sorry, and verse of Acts and every verse in the book of Revelation. And now we're going through every verse in the book of Romans. So don't say we don't know the word and we don't know doctrine. 
we want to have zeal based on knowledge. They had zeal based on no knowledge, just zeal for God, and they'd rejected the true gospel. Paul goes on to say the law has no saving power. It's not salvific. Salvific, that's a big word, Isaiah. I don't understand that. It means it doesn't save. The, the law doesn't save us. Works don't save us. Righteousness is only by faith. That's the only way you could secure a relationship with God in these crazy times. And then Paul says, it's important to hear the good news. And how are they going to hear the good news unless there's a preacher? I got to tell you, the world needs us to preach to them. What I'm doing tonight is needed in this world or I wouldn't be giving my life to this. The Bible says, how will they be saved if they don't hear? And how will they hear if there's not a preacher? So Paul discusses the importance of preachers. You're a preacher. I'm a preacher. We're all called to be preachers of the gospel. And then finally, Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. The message is heard through the word of God. Okay, this is what makes the Christian life a personal faith. It is about hearing the word and the word transforming our lives. The word in John 1, not the Bible, the word who is Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And Jesus was speaking the word of God, revealing the mind of God, the heart of God and the plan of God. So that leads us. We're left with this question now. Will, get, will God give up on Israel? And it's not going to be like, find out next week. We're going to find out tonight. Will God give up on Israel or will God find a way, despite their disobedience, to reach them? That's the question that Paul is going to fight to answer in Romans chapter 11. I hope I'm making this somewhat exciting to you guys because I want to make the word of God exciting because it is exciting. It's alive and it's sharp. So let's go to Romans chapter 11. Let me give you a second to open it up in your Bible. Open up Romans chapter 11 so we can jump into this. We're going to answer the question, is God going to give up on Israel? Are they too far gone? Romans 11, 1 through 2. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Paul says, for I, I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. So Paul's going to open up Romans 11. You think God would cast them away for them rejecting him. And Paul says, is God going to cast them away? And he says, certainly not for I'm an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is saying God has not rejected Israel, even though Israel has rejected them. And I want to tell somebody this right now that's watching. I feel this in my spirit. You think that God has rejected you because you've spent years rejecting him. But the Lord is speaking to you right now saying, even though you've rejected me, even though you fought me off, even though you're spending extra effort and energy to not serve me and to not pray to me and to not go to church and to not hear the word and you stumbled on this broadcast, God says, even though you've rejected me, I have not rejected you. And I, I want you to notice in this verse, Paul is referring to the people that God hasn't rejected as the remnant that he talks about in Romans 9. But I want you to notice that Paul includes himself in the narrative to say, I'm an Israelite. Some of you are like, why is Paul saying I'm an Israelite? Because Paul is saying, I'm an Israelite and God has not cast me away. So he's the evidence God has not rejected the Jews, which Paul was. So Paul says, I'm the evidence that God has not rejected the Jews. If God had rejected the Jews, Paul would not have a prominent role in God's kingdom. So the reason why Paul brings himself into the narrative is Paul is saying, God hasn't rejected the Jews because God hasn't rejected me or the, and the Israelites. And I want you to know that your life is a prophetic picture of what God can do in other lives. The fact that God has delivered me 
is proof God can deliver my friends and family. You are a prophetic sign to humanity of God's saving power. You're a walking billboard of the power of God. The Bible says that you are we are written epistles read by all men. You are a book of the Bible. You're the 67th book according to Paul. You're a written epistle and people are reading you when you go to work. You're the book they read. When you go to school, they're reading you. When you're at your family reunion, they're reading you, wondering what does your life look like? And so let us be a billboard of mercy, of grace, of peace, of deliverance, of healing. The fact God's healed me, I'm a sign God can heal you too. So if you think God can't deliver, I'm the proof God can. If you think God can't heal, I'm proof that God can heal. If you think God can't use that your, your wild atheist cousin, I'm the proof that God can. So Paul brings himself in and says, I'm an Israelite. I'm a Jew. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin and God didn't forsake me. That's what Paul is implying here. So Paul includes himself in the narrative. Second, he brings himself in to remind the Jews that he was one of them. Therefore qualified to speak on their situation. So Paul says, number one, God has not abandoned Israel because I'm being used by God right now. Number two, I'm one of you guys. I can I can speak on this. I'm qualified to speak on the situation because I've I am an Israelite. I've been where you've been, and, and I am qualified tonight to speak on deliverance and healing because I've been delivered and I've been healed. So I, I know what it's like to be so wrapped up in bondage, you feel like you can barely breathe when you get out of bed in the morning. I know what it's like to be done partying and drinking and sleeping around and doing all the stuff and laying my head on my pillow and looking up at my ceiling and saying, I know there's more to life than the life that I'm living. I know what it's like to be full of unbelief and bitterness and racism and resentment and anger and hatred in my heart and God reach down to an altar, take my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. I know what it's like to be broken and addicted, scratching around, the Bible says, like people with no eyes, looking for something in life to hang on to and the mighty power of God. Come on, chat, where are you tonight? Reach down and change my life. Paul's not detached. Paul's not far off. Paul's not out of touch. Paul knows what it's like for these people, what these people are dealing with. And Paul says, I'm qualified to speak on their situation. This is why I'm going to keep shouting about deliverance and healing and the miracle power of God and the transforming power is because God has done it for me. And I'm qualified to tell you he can do it for you too. Paul's going to, Paul is going, I'm not giving some outside perspective. I'm one of you. I'm, I'm not far off. Isaiah Salvador is not on a pedestal. I'm not on a stage looking down at you. I'm right here with you, preaching with you, saying, Tonight, Lord, deliver me. Tonight, Lord, heal me. Tonight, Lord, transform my mind by the power of the Holy Spirit. Trust me, I am no not above anybody. In fact, I'm below you. Because to be great, to be great in the kingdom of God is to be a servant. Jesus says, You want to be a great leader? You want to be a great pastor, a great preacher? Here's a towel. Wash feet. And so the, the true act of being royalty in God's kingdom and being a leader, Jesus shows us, is washing people's feet. It's the lowest position on your knees, washing the dirt off of someone's feet. That's to be great. And that's what I want to do is I want to serve you guys and wash your feet so that I can be great in God's kingdom so that I can show humility. This is the path to greatness is to go lower. Every time I feel like I'm low and I'm humble, God says, lower, go lower. How low can you go? There's no way you could be too humble so God is asking us to humble ourselves. Okay, Romans. 
We're going to be here all night if I take 10 minutes to go over one verse. Romans 11, 2 through 6. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant. Listen to what Paul says here. There is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Okay, so in this passage, Paul takes us back to 1 Kings chapter 19, where we find the account of Elijah fleeing from Jezebel, who was the Sidonian wife of King Ahab. This pagan woman was promoting Baal worship throughout the land, killing prophets. Elijah just gets done having a massive victory on Mount Carmel against 450 false prophets. When Ahab informed Jezebel of Elijah's victory, she sent a threatening note to Elijah telling him she's going to have his head in the next 24 hours. Remember this. Elijah and Jezebel never meet in scripture. They never met one time. It was just by the words that she spoke that had Elijah fleeing for his life. So trust me, there is real spiritual power in words. Elijah buckles and the Bible says he fled out into the desert south of Beersheba to hide and pray. While there, he's hiding, asking God to take his life while hiding uh, 1 Kings 19.9 says, The word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah was fleeing battle and was the thinking he's the only faithful servant left in the land. He was ready to give up because he thought he was alone. That's why Elijah wanted to give up and say, God, take my life. is because he felt like there's no one else out there preaching what I'm preaching. There's no one standing up for truth. All these other preachers, pastors, leaders, prophets have bowed their knee to Baal, have given over to Baal. I'm the only one left. And the word of the Lord comes and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And then this is what God says. And, and this ties into what Paul says in Romans 11. I'm, I'm going to tie it all in here. I've reserved 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed their knee to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So in this case, 7,000 does not mean a head count. Like God says, there's exactly 7,000 on the dot. The 7,000 of Israel were the remnant. In the scripture, there's a special significance attached to seven and to multiples of seven. And it's a symbol of completeness and perfection. In Revelation, there are seven churches. There are seven seals. There are seven trumpets. There are seven thunders, seven golden bowls. In creation, there are ding, 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 seven days. Seven is part of God's prophetic language. So in referencing the 7,000 of Elijah's day, Paul is giving the church a picture of God's faithfulness to God's divine purpose, a purpose that will go unchanged. God is saying, I have a remnant. Like, trust me, guys, with all the craziness going on in the church right now globally and all the wild theology out there, God says the 7,000, there's a remnant that have not bowed their knee to Baal. Amen. If you're part of the 7,000, let me know that haven't bowed their knee to Baal, that are preaching the strong, true word of God, that are standing up for holiness, standing up for the word, standing up for life. Come on, standing up for what God God says, standing up to deliver, to heal, to save. There's a remnant that hasn't bowed their knee. That's the 7,000. Seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven golden bowls, seven, seven, seven. It is divine completion. It's prophetic language. It's significant in God's plan. So Paul is bringing up this Old Testament story as a way of saying, listen, God always has a faithful remnant in the earth. 
And it's true in the dark days of Elijah, and it's true now that God will not reject the Jews, that God will not reject Israel, that God is going to save, that God will save. Paul's reminding us that salvation is a work of grace. Now, grace and works both have their rightful place, but when you mix grace and works, you spoil them both. So we don't try to work this thing, guys. It's the grace of God that produces good works in the believer. So Paul says, if you work, it's no longer grace. So you can't say I'm saved by grace, but then think you're working for your salvation because Paul says if you work for it, it's no longer grace. And if it's by grace, it's no longer works. So you got to stop mixing grace and works. They're separate things and they're powerful, but they don't mix. It's like oil and water. They just don't mix together. Romans 11, 7 through 10. What then? This is a question. Question mark. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks. But the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear. To this very day, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a re recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow their back always. So this is Paul talking about Israel. Paul is saying this. Sorry, I have a hair on my glasses. Paul is saying Israel seeked righteousness through the law, not Christ. So they did not obtain what they seeked, but the elect have. So they seeked righteousness through the law. They didn't obtain what they seeked, but the elect, the remnant that God has chosen through Christ has gotten righteousness. And because they didn't seek God, because they were rebellious, because they seek the law to gain righteousness, God gave them a spirit of stupor. That's what the Bible says, okay? Let me show you this again. Some of you are like, well, God would never give someone a spirit that's not good, and God doesn't give out bad spirits, okay? It says God has given them a spirit of stupor, and that word stupor means unconsciousness or insensibility. It means that they're not aware of what they're doing. Their, their eyes have been darkened. They've been blinded. They've been, their heart has been hardened. But the reason why is because they've already rejected God. So it's not like God says, I'm going to harden these, these Jews, these Israelites. I'm going to make them not serve me. It's the same thing with Pharaoh. He had already seen the miraculous power of God, turned his heart from God. So then God is able to harden the heart when in reality, God is just doing what they're asking for. They've rejected him. They don't want him. And so God allows their heart to be, to be hardened. And Paul is saying, now, well, earlier Paul was saying, God has mercy on who he wills and God hardens who he wills. We went over that a few weeks ago. So we can only resist God for so long. And I want you to hear what I'm about to say until we're hardened. When a heart is hardened, it resists the grace of God. It fights the mercy of God. People without grace and that hearts have been hardened are under the judgment of God. Now, two things happen when people continue to resist God, when he offers grace, love, and mercy. First, they become hardened. Their heart becomes hardened, making it difficult for them to receive the truth in the future when they hear it. It makes them complacent to the truth. They're unable to respond to God in humility. And it's basically like getting a spiritual tattoo that's very, very hard to remove. Many listening right now have become hardened. They've lost their conviction. They've lost their passion for God. They've lost their desire to pursue him. If you're here and you say, man, that was a time where I was passionate, where I went after God and now I don't have a desire, you've gotten hardened. Second, God removes blessing from their lives. In a biblical world, the table was a symbol of prosperity and blessing and it, resemb it resembled or represented the pleasures of life. 
So when the psalmist in Psalm 69, 22 said, let their table become a snare before them, he's saying, God, take the pleasure out of the lives of those that reject you. If you've watched God remove blessings from you, it's probably because you've resisted them, you become disobedient, and you become hardened. But here's the beauty tonight. There's still time to repent. There's still time to say, God, take my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Friend, there's still time for you. If you're listening to this and your heart is hard, God says, I will take your hard heart and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll bring the blessing back to your life. I'll bring the pleasure back to your life. I'll bring the purpose back to your life. I'll bring the hope back to your life. You, you got to ask God to soften your heart because God will harden the hearts of those whom he wills. Romans 11, 11 through 12. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, it, it does sound complicated, but I'm going to make it very simple. To provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? I know you say, it's so complicated. That's why we're here tonight. We're literally doing this to explain this and break this down. So when you read it, you don't just read it and go, what in the world is he talking about? Okay, here's what Paul's doing. Paul is turning his attention from the remnant, okay, to Israel as a whole. And he asks the question, is there any hope for them? Will Israel ever get back up off their back? Will Israel ever repent? Are they doomed forever? And then Paul answers the question by saying, certainly not. Paul says, while the Jews are rejecting God, God will reach the Gentiles to purposely make the Jews jealous, okay? The Jews will see God's blessing on the Gentiles and get jealous. And he goes on to say, if the failure, the failure of the Jews brings riches to the Gentiles. Now, how could the failure of the Jews bring riches to the Gentiles? Because, because the Jews resented God, rebelled against God and didn't want God, God went to the Gentiles. So that was the riches of the Gentiles. The Jews rejecting God brought the message to the Gentiles. And now because the Gentiles have the message, it's making the Jewish people jealous. I hope I'm making this simple. So he says that the failure of the Jews brings riches to the Gentiles. Their return to God. So now the Jews return to God will bring an even greater riches to the Gentiles. So because Israel did not welcome Christ, God opened up his gift of salvation to the Gentiles. So prior to Christ, the only way for a Gentile to identify himself as a follower of Yahweh was to identify with God's covenant people and to submit to God's law as a Jew. They had to literally become a Jew in the sense that do everything the Jews did. That's how a Gentile could become a follower of Yahweh. With Christ, Gentiles no longer had to convert to Judaism. If they put their faith in Jesus, they didn't become Jews. They became Christians. Thank you, Lord. That's the beauty. You don't have to convert to Judaism. You put your faith in Jesus and you don't turn into a Jew. You turn into a Christian. You don't have to go through all the laws and all the sacrifices and all the rituals, but you can now, I'm, I'm glad I'm making it simple. Let me know if it's, I'm breaking it down simply for you guys. Now you become a Christian. That's the beauty of the new covenant is you're not jumping through a million hoops to try to get circumcised. I mean, think about this. Come on. Back then, you had to get circumcised to be able to be a follower of Yahweh. As an adult, it didn't matter. Thank God that now Jesus circumcises our heart and we don't have to go through that. Okay, that's so that's what Paul was saying there of why they were jealous, okay? So with Christ, Gentiles no longer had to convert. And now the Jews are going to look at the Gentiles and say, God is blessing them. God is prospering them. God is using them. And 
that's going to provoke them to jealousy to seek the Lord and to seek Christ. This is all part of God's plan, guys. Trust me, it's, it's incredible. Romans 11, 13 through 15. For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke jealousy to those who are my flesh and save some of them. So he's talking about the Jews. For if they're being cast away, is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Okay? So it's good that they understand that Paul's an apostle to the Gentiles, which he calls himself, but he doesn't want them to forget that he's also a witness to the Jews. So Paul being a apostle to the Gentiles, also a witness to the Jews. He's going to remind us of both of that. And he's going to also describe to us that Paul doesn't, that Christ, not Paul, but Christ doesn't have two bodies of people any longer. It's not the church of the Jews and the church of the Christians or the Gentiles. It is According to Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There's only one baptism. There's only one God. There's only one hope. There's one Lord, one faith, one body, one spirit, and we're all called by him. There's not multiple denominations, multiple. Jesus is not coming back for brides. He's coming back for a bride. He's not coming back for a thousand denominations in every different group. He is coming back for the bride of Christ. We have so much division in the church. Paul's reminding us of this, that the body of Christ is made up of Jews and Gentiles. Okay, not just one or the other. And Paul pays close attention to his ministry because he knows that the more the Gentile world responds to the gospel, the more the Jews will be aroused to action. That's the goal. He goes, listen, if all these Gentiles start getting saved, it's going to arouse the Jews to respond in action and say, I need to get, I need to get right with God. I need to get serious. I'm God's chosen people and I'm rejecting the Messiah. Again, Romans 11 is about the Jews and the Gentiles. So that's why we'll go into practical here in a few minutes. Romans 11:16. for if the first fruit, I'm sorry, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Again, I'm going to explain this to you, okay? If it sounds complicated, that's what we're here for. Paul's going to use two analogies. The lump of dough, that's what the lump is, and the root. But he's going to use them to teach a significant concept. Here's the concept. The lump is the present number of Jews that have bowed to Jesus as their Lord. They are the first fruit of the elect. So there were many Jews getting saved all over the place. It wasn't just no Jews got saved. That's the lump he's talking about. He's talking about the first elect, first fruit remnant that got saved. The second analogy, the root, addresses the beginning source of their life. So covenantly, the root goes back to Abraham, who we know has a place in history, has a very powerful story. Paul is pointing out to the future restoration of the nation of Israel to God. He did not expect this to happen in his lifetime, though he hoped he would convert some. So Paul says some will get converted, but the restoration of Israel will not happen in Paul's lifetime. The restoration of Israel or the nation is going to be sometime in the future. We know it's going to be when the Lord returns, which I'll share that with you later because Paul's going to talk about that. So Paul's talking about the future restoration of Israel. He's going to convert some, but it's not going to be till the future where Israel is restored. Romans 11, 17 through 18. And if some of the branches, listen closely, guys, were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Okay. 
So the olive tree is a familiar landscape in Israel. It represents strength and blessings. It could be, it could stay around for thousands of years. The olive tree is an incredible tree, okay? It represents strength. It represents blessing. Psalms 52, 8, David said, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. So Paul uses the branch of an olive tree as to picture what God has done in grafting in the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the wild olive tree, okay? That's us. We're the wild olive tree that God has grafted in. He's grafted it into the cultivated olive tree, which is Israel. Israel's the olive tree. God has grafted the Gentiles in to his chosen people. And Paul's metaphor, some of the olive branches were broken off and shoots were grafted into the tree. God was turning the Gentiles into a fruit-bearing people, and this left no room for them to boast. So Paul's going to now tell the Gentiles, don't boast. Okay, don't say, oh, I'm saved, but look at these worldly, terrible people that aren't saved. Look at these Christians that are all lukewarm and dead, and look at me, look at me. Paul says, no, 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 don't boast. There's no room for that, because he says, if you do boast, remember that you don't support the root, the root supports you. So the very source of our lives is God. He's the one supporting us. We don't support ourselves. God supports us, so that's why we cannot boast. God is the ultimate gardener. He's the keeper of the vineyard. Remember, Jesus talked about branches that are cut off, that don't produce fruit, and those that do produce are pruned so they could produce even more. This is what Paul, this is what Jesus was saying, that I'm the vine, okay? My father's the vine dresser. You guys are connected to me. So Paul was saying, you are the wild olive tree that God grafted in, but again, don't boast about it. Don't be haughty or arrogant about it because you're not the source. God is the source. He's the one. He's just grafted you into the tree. Romans 11, 19 through 21. You will say then, okay, listen to what he says here. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, okay? So Paul's saying the Jews, branches were broken off so I could be grafted in. Paul said, well said, because of unbelief, this is the Jews, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Again, he's going to keep telling us the same thing. You're going to stand on faith. That's why you get grafted in. That's how you get grafted into the family of God is by faith. Hello. But he goes, you were grafted in. They were broken off because of their unbelief. And then he says this, do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he might not spare you either. So he says, don't be haughty, but fear God. Why? Because God didn't even spare his own chosen people. God didn't even bring Israel all in and the Jews all in, but God allowed them to be broken off. God broke them off the tree. So he tells the, he's telling these Gentiles, don't, don't get arrogant because if God didn't spare them, he might not spare you either. The Gentiles were now recipients of the blessings of, that were belonged to God. Many Jews had rejected God and therefore did not receive the blessings. The Gentile temptation to boast must've been massive. I mean, think about this. God's chosen people get rejected. You get chosen and you're, you're tempted to say, look at me. God chose me and God didn't chose you. And Paul is like warning against boasting. Paul warns them, do not repeat the sins of the Jews. The Jews did not depend on God for their salvation, but their own works. And Paul tells the Gentiles, remember the only reason why you're grafted in was because you depended on God. If they now let go of their dependence on God, God could just as easily broke them off as he broke off the self-reliant Jews. The only reason, everyone in the chat hear me, the only reason you've been grafted in is by your faith and by your dependence on God. You're a beggar. You go, God, I need you every day. So he says, don't lose that dependence because God can easily break you off. We, we cannot get haughty when God cuts someone off and say, that would never happen to me or look how terrible they are and I'm too good because you could be next. Pride 
comes before the fall. If you want to know when someone's about to fall, start seeing pride in their life. The pride comes before the fall. So don't get arrogant. Don't get haughty. I don't look at people that backslide or fall and say, oh, I would never fall like him. I would never fall into that. I would never do that. That's arrogant. That's haughty. I say, Lord, thank you for your grace. I depend on you to keep me holy. I depend on you to keep me against all these temptations and desires of the flesh. I depend on you for my deliverance. I depend on you for my healing. I don't ever want to become a guy that looks down on others and you know laughs at those that fall, that get cut off. Thank you, Lord, for grafting me in. Keep me pure. Keep me holy. We don't want to get haughty and stare at other people saying, I would never follow that because that could be the very thing the devil brings into your life. Romans 11, 22 through 24. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. Okay, consider them both. Don't just be only goodness. Consider them both, Paul says. On those who fell, severity. But towards you, goodness. And if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you'll also be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. And then I want you to highlight this in your Bible. This is one of my favorite statements in all of the Bible. For God is able to graft them in again. Okay, that's what Paul says. For if you were cut off the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So Paul is saying this. An, uh, a wild olive tree cannot be grafted into a natural into a cultivated olive tree. But he says, God took you off the wild olive tree, the wild branches, and grafted you into the cultivated olive tree. So that if God can do that, how much more will the natural branches be grafted in? So he's saying, if you get haughty, if you get arrogant, God will cut you off and God will have no problem grafting in other people. It's no problem for God. So in this passage, we see Paul holding out hope for the Jews. If they do not continue in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Unbelief is what kills the branches. And belief is what gives life to them. If the Jews would stop living in unbelief. He says, give up your unbelief. Paul says, the kindness and the power of God would reestablish them in the kingdom of God. If God has removed you and you're here tonight and you are a removed branch. Remember the words of Paul. God is able to graft you in again. Somebody needs to pray that tonight. Lord, graft me in again. I've been fruitless. I've been cut off. Lord, graft me back in. I repent. Lord, bring me back. God will. Come on, if you've backslid, God says, I will graft you back into my kingdom. I will graft you back in to my brand, to my all, cultivated olive tree, and I will restore you and renew you. Romans 11, 25 to 27. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Listen to what he says here. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he'll return away God ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay, so Paul wants the Gentiles to be knowledgeable of the mystery. And by the mystery, Paul is referring to the future salvation of the bulk of Israel. He wants the Gentile Christians to know this is so they won't be conceited and they're part of God's plan. They didn't permanently replace the Jews as God's chosen people. They were not the end-all be-all for God. But Paul says part of the reason why Israel experienced a hardening or blinding of sense was so the full number of Gentiles could enter the kingdom. This was all part of God's plan from the beginning. In other words, 
the Gentiles are on shaky ground if they look down on hardened Israel, because if it were not for Israel's hardening, many of the Gentiles would not be saved. Furthermore, Paul says, when the full number of Gentiles are saved, Israel as a nation will be saved. This will happen at the return of Christ. The deliverer will come out of Zion. The deliverer, who's Christ, coming out of Zion, which is heaven, is the return of the Lord. And that's going to be a beautiful day. That's when Israel will be saved. Now, we don't interpret this as every living Jew will get saved at the return of Christ. That's not what the text says. But the nation of Israel as a whole will turn back to God. When Christ returns, the deliverer comes out of Zion. That's the mystery. Israel will turn back to God. Not every single living, breathing Jew, but Israel as a nation will once again become a nation that fears God and turns to God. Wow, that's a good word there. Romans 11, 28 through 29. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. So Paul is explaining a two-sided truth to the Gentiles, okay? He says the unbelieving Jews are God's enemies in the sense that they rejected God's gift of righteousness by faith, which we've talked a lot about that. God will use the Jews' unbelief to bring the fullness of the Gentiles into his kingdom, okay? On the other hand... Paul says God loves the unbelieving Israelites because ever since the faith of Abraham, Israel has been God's specially chosen people. That's what Paul is saying there. So when Paul says the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable, what he's saying is nothing can stop the call of God. I know a lot of us have used that saying, well, the gifts and callings of God were irrevocable. You can live however you want. God will never take back your calling or your gifts. That's not really what the text is saying. The text is saying God is not changing his mind on Israel because his promises are irrevocable. God's a, not a man that he should lie. He doesn't give a prophetic word and promise, say, I will save the nation of Israel, and then say, oh, I don't really think I'm going to do it anymore. The gifts and the callings are irrevocable. The gift is salvation. Are y'all tracking with me tonight? The gift is salvation. It's eternal life, and God's not going to revoke it, but he says it will come to pass. And God promised in Isaiah 59, 20 that the nation, the sins of the nation of Israel will be taken away, and God is going to make good on that promise. God is not changing his mind about restoring and saving Israel. Romans, okay, we're almost in chapter 12 here. Bear with me. Romans 11, 30 through 32. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. So you obtained mercy through their disobedience, okay? Because remember, they're disobedient, so now God comes to the Gentile. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown to you, they might obtain mercy. Okay, so watch, okay, I'll, I'll break it down in a second. For God has committed them all the disobedience that, they might, that he might have mercy on them all. So Paul is saying, they were disobedient, you got saved, okay? But now, your obedience is going to bring them getting saved. So you got mercy, now they're going to obtain the mercy that through the through me showing you mercy, they're going to want the mercy. So it's this like domino effect of they rebel, the Gentiles get saved. And because the Gentiles get saved, the Jews want God. It's this, it's this chain reaction that Paul's describing here in Romans 11, 30 through 32. It sounds kind of complicated, but it's not the emphasis here. And the important part to know is mercy. Okay. Mercy is a word that appears four times in three verses. And this is the truth. Only God's mercy can save people. In chapter 9, Paul quotes God as saying, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. Implying that God will not have mercy on everybody, but God will have mercy on whom he wills. But Paul points out how inclusive God's mercy is by saying, for God has committed them all the disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So to appreciate true mercy, you have to put it against the background of our disobedience. In our disobedience, God showed us mercy. 
while we were enemies to God, God extended grace and mercy to us. What an incredible God that we serve that God sends mercy to his enemies. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways are past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has given to him and, and shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So the end, Paul, the end of chapter 11, Paul quotes Isaiah 40, 13 and Job 41, 11. Paul also points out that God does not owe us anything because we give God back what came from him. Everything, note this, that we give to God is something that God has already given to us. We can't even praise God without the breath that God gave us in our lungs. We say, and then he says, who has become God's counselor? In other words, God, decide what, God decides what he wants to do without anyone's assistance. He doesn't inquire with the counselor before making a decision and nobody can lay hold of God. He by himself is God. He doesn't need permission. He doesn't need counseling. He doesn't need approval. He doesn't need to run it by your pastor before God does something. He alone is God. Okay, now we're going to go to chapter 12 here. It's much shorter. Paul's going to change the topic. We're done with Israel and the Jews now. He's going to move on to having a right relationship with God in our everyday life. For the most part, the rest of Romans, which I think there's, what, 16 chapters, is going to be practical ways to serve God. I know that was a lot of theology. That was a lot of complex principles. I hope I made them simple. But now we're going into very basic practical ways to serve the Lord. And Paul's going to change it here. I love this. Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So to, now, to use therefore is the apostle's way of signaling a transition from a summary of all that's been done before. So now he says, therefore, so all of that I just described in 11, that's that's the summary, okay? That's, that's then, therefore, let's get, go into something new here, and he's going to start talking about presenting your body as a living sacrifice. Now, note this. The temple in the old covenant was a building in the church. The body of, of the believer is the Holy Spirit's temple. You're, it's no longer a building. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. And the old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats and calves was the sacrifice. But under the blessing of the new covenant, the sacrificial blood is Christ's blood. Okay. Christ in the old, co I'm sorry, in the old covenant, the priests handled the sacrifices and were permitted to enter the Holy of Holies only once a year. In the new covenant, believers became the priests and have direct access to the Holy of Holies, God's presence at all times. This is amazing. So we now are a generation of priests with Christ being our high priest. The priesthood is no longer in office attained by doing good or going to seminary. Christ bestows this upon us now when we accept his blood as atonement for our sin. We become priests. So now we're priests. Okay, you got that? We don't offer bulls or goats as a sacrifice. We offer our bodies, our physical bodies as living sacrifices unto God as priests. In my initial encounter with God, the night I got saved, I told God, I have nothing to offer you. Like, I'm an, I'm an atheist 10 minutes ago. What do I have to offer you? And God said, I'll take your hands. I'll take your feet. I'll take your mouth. I'll take your body. And so that night, I didn't know this was in the Bible. I offered my body to God as a living sacrifice. And my question to you tonight is, have you offered your body to God as a living sacrifice? Have you said, I'm not bringing a video game or my phone or my addiction to the altar. I'm coming to the altar and I'm going to be the sacrifice. 
I'm not looking for something to sacrifice tonight. I'm going to be the sacrifice. My body parts are going to be the living sacrifice. God wants your hands so that he can heal through them. God wants your mouth so that he can speak through you. God wants your feet so that the, the beauty of those feet that bring the gospel. God says, give me your body parts. Your body doesn't belong to you. Friend, when you got saved, your body no longer belongs to you. Your body belongs to God. So God says, give me your body. Our body is not inherently evil. Our bodies are capable of evil and good. But when we offer them to God, it's basically saying, God, my body parts are under your control now. So now I'm going to use my mouth to preach your word. Someone said, I'm confused. It's simple. I'm going to use my mouth to preach the word of God. I'm giving my mouth to God. I'm giving my ears to God. That means I don't get to listen to whatever I want to listen to because my ears are not mine. I don't watch whatever garbage I feel like watching because my eyes don't belong to me any longer. My eyes belong to God and God doesn't want to watch that. He doesn't want to hear that. My feet, I don't get to just go wherever I want to go. No, my feet belong to God and I, I go and preach the word. My hands belong to God. So if I'm at the store, if I'm somewhere at a family uh, reunion or a vacation with my family or whatever, and God says, I want you to go lay hands on that person. I don't get to tell God no, because guess what? My hands belong to God. I've given God my hands. I've given myself as a living sacrifice. Tonight, offer your body to God and watch him use you in incredible ways. One translation says, this is true and proper worship. This is true and proper worship, not just repeating songs off a screen, but offering your body to God as a living sacrifice. Put your body on the altar and say, God, I'm giving you my body. You can use me, but don't, do not, Say, God, you can use me, and then tell God no later. Do not go back and, and say, well, I didn't mean it, God. You know, use, let God use you. God wants to use your body, so lay your body down. You're not sacrificing a bull or a goat. You're the sacrifice. That's why in the Old Testament, let me just give you one more free nugget here. The fire would fall on sacrifice. So Elijah built an altar. What happened? The fire fell. In the New Testament, the upper room became the altar. The people became the sacrifice, and tongues of fire rested on them. The fire fell on the people because they became the sacrifice. That's a good word. Yes, they became the sacrifice. So if you want fire to fall, become the sacrifice that God can fall on. Romans 12, 2. And then, oh, I love this. Man, every single verse in this chapter is incredible. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We only have two options. We are either being conformed to the world or transformed by the power of God. The world wants to conform you. They want you to think like them. They're trying to get you to conform, think like us, talk like us, live like us, go where we go, do what we do, but we must think different. We must think different about goals. We must think different about career paths. We must think different about race. We must think different about peace and joy, about sex, about pleasure, about purpose, all these areas of life that we navigate, our, our desire for our kids, our thoughts must be different. We can't be like the world. Everything about us needs to be different. We just, we can't conform. The world wants conformity, but Christ wants confirmation, um, transformation. God calls us to a life of transformation. A transformed life requires the renewing of your mind. So this is what Paul is saying. We got to think different, y'all. We can't be living and acting and talking like the world. We need to think different. Paul often writes about having the mind of Christ. We must begin to think about our circumstances as Christ would think about them. We must get a new perspective, a perspective that takes 
practice and self-discipline and renewal. Now, in other letters, Paul said to the Philippians about having a Christ-like perspective. This is what Paul said in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Watch what Paul says here. Let this mind be in you also, which was in Christ Jesus. Listen to that. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death, even the death of the cross. So renewing our minds, getting Christ's perspective is a matter of humbling ourselves to the extent that we become servants of the people around us. He goes, you want to know how to think like Christ? You want the mind of God? Serve the people around you. Don't be conformed. Why is that opposite than what culture teaches? Culture says, oh, it feels good? Then do it as much as you can. Culture says, don't worry about the other people. Get to the top of the ladder. Who, who cares who you have to knock down climbing up? Who cares who you have to steal from? Who you have to cheat? What you have to do? It's about you. It's about your pleasure. It's about your life. It's about your peace. And they say that stupid term I can't stand. You just got to speak your truth. You just got to find your truth. You just got to find your peace. No, you need to find Jesus. And when you find Jesus, you become a servant to everyone around you. And you no longer, come on, help me preach tonight, Lord. You no longer preference yourself over everyone else. It's not no longer your world. It's not your show. It's about how can I serve my wife? How can I serve my kids? How can I serve my church? How can I serve you guys? You say, well, Isaiah, you spent hours with us. Thank you. This I'm here to serve you. I'm not here to be served and get likes and shares. I'm here to serve you and to reach people with the gospel. It's anti-culture. It's anti what the culture teaches. In the culture, it's all about you. And Jesus says, you need to die. It is not about you. So get out of that narrow-minded, the egotistical, narcissistic mindset that the world revolves around you. Romans 12, 3 through 5. And then watch what Paul says. And Paul's just going to go ahead and hit a home run right here. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one of you a measure of faith for as we have many members in one body but all the members do not have the same function so we being many are in one body in christ and individually members of one another so paul is saying do not think so highly about yourself paul why do you say this because paul used to think so highly of himself before he was converted which of one of the reasons why he persecuted the church but later he came aware he became aware of how destructive pride is pride will make you think highly of yourself and he exhorts them be sober Judgment is an act of, of faithfulness to God. God will judge you. You need to be sober. Rightly judge yourself before God has to. Here's how the NLT says it. I love the NLT. Watch what Paul says here. Same verse. Watch what he says. Because of the privilege and the authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. So you better listen up here because Paul says, here's the warning. Here's the red flag. Don't think you're better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself measuring yourselves by the faith that God has given us. This is the message. Here's the message. We all have a tendency to think our, better, uh, think of ourselves as better than we are. But Paul says, come on, be honest. You really don't pray that much. Come on. You really don't read that much. You really don't love that much or witness or minister. Why do you think you're better than you really are? Why are you buying your own press? Don't buy your own press. Don't think you're more highly and you're some super spiritual 
look at yourself properly and judge yourself according to the faith that God has given you. The grace that Paul received was the gift of him being an apostle. And this was his gift in serving others and overseeing the churches. So he says, I have authority to tell you this. Be honest. And so I would say tonight, I know we're an hour over an hour in, evaluate yourself. Look at yourself and say, am I really a Christian? Am I really like as radical as I thought? Am I really as on fire? One thing I don't, I don't ever want to do is buy my own press. I don't ever want to read the comments and believe them. Go, oh, there's this great, incredible. Thank you. Okay. Praise the Lord. Thank you. God's using me. But I don't ever want to think I'm this high, lifted up, exalted guy that could never stumble, never fall, be perfect. And I know the Bible front to back. I don't want to believe that. I want to look at myself and say, I'm a bond servant. That's all I am. I'm, don't call me Pastor Isaiah. Don't call me Prophet Isaiah. Don't call me Apostle. Don't call me Bondservant, Slave of God. I've said that before. That's what my. That's what I want my title to be. I want on my gravestone it say Slave of God. Like I don't want to be Pastor Isaiah. I want to be Slave of Christ. That's the humility God is calling us to have. Do not buy your own press. Humble yourself. We need to watch ourselves. We need to make sure we stay in the secret place. We need to make sure that we don't exalt ourselves. Don't put ourselves on a pedestal thinking we're better than we really are. Wow, Paul is strong here. Romans 12, 6 through 8. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that has given us. So we all have gifts, but they're different, okay? Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in portion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts, exhortation. He who gives with liber with um, liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Here's what Paul is saying. Focus on the gift that God has given you. If you preach, then preach. If you prophesy, then prophesy. If you're a good encourager, then encourage. If you teach, then teach. Don't worry about everybody else and what God's called them to do. Why are you so nosy? Like, I'm, I'm this and you're that and I'm called and you're... Don't even worry. Paul says, if you prophesy, then go get your prophecy on. If you're a preacher, then go ahead and preach. Stay in your lane. Okay, the church is an orchestra, not a solo artist. This is not a solo performance. We are an orchestra. We all have pieces. We all work together. Don't let other people shame you for not doing what God's called them to do. Why aren't you on the corner, Isaiah? Because God didn't call me to go to the corner. Why aren't you feeding homeless people at the outreach? Because God didn't call me to be feeding homeless people at the outreach. I did that for years, and God called me right now to do this. Why aren't you out traveling every weekend like you used to? Because God didn't tell me to travel every weekend like I used to. God told me to create content online and reach the next generation. Well, why aren't you doing this? Because God didn't call me. Why don't you start a church? Because God didn't call me. And the gift God's given me is to teach and preach. And so if you preach, then preach. If you teach, then teach. If you feed the homeless, then go feed the homeless. Even the disciples said, we can't be out feeding the homeless. We got to pray and read. So they assigned people to do that because they knew where they were gifted. So know your gifting and stay in your lane. Oh, thank you, Lord. Good word, Paul. Romans 12, 9 through 13. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. So Paul's giving us instruction how to live. In honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, fervent. Don't be that calm, complacent, whenever God feels it and what God wants to, I'll do it. No, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saint and given to hospitality. So he says, love for one another. We need to love each other. Okay. We need to love our fellow believers. Doesn't matter if you like them or not. You need to love them. Paul says, don't be lagging in diligence. Don't be lacking. 
have spiritual fervor. In other words, don't get bored. Don't let yourself be a bored Christian. Think of when Jesus called Peter and Andrew in their fishing boat. They were going about their work day and Jesus showed up and said, follow me. He could have said, no, I have work to do, Jesus. I can't follow you. But instead he says, I'm going to give everything up and go follow you. That's Matthew 4. So be that diligent, fervent type of Christian where God says, do this. You jump on it. You don't need to wait a month. Be fervent. Don't be bored. Follow after Jesus. Don't get lazy. Keep that diligence. And then be hospitable. Hospitality means having love for strangers. And the Bible says to practice that. So you need to practice love for strangers. If you don't love strangers, you need to pray that God will give you a love for strangers. He says, listen, have a love, show hospitality. If you're a hospitable person, then be hospitable. You don't have to preach, teach, prophesy, be hospitable, be an apostle, feed the, you don't have to do everything. Just find your role, find your part and do that. Okay. So take a deep breath and say, oh, I was trying to do everything. And now I could just do the one thing God's called me to do. If that's your gift, then Paul says, do it. Okay. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. And then he says, bless and do not curse. Do not curse. Remember Jesus said, if somebody slaps you in the face, turn and offer them the other cheek. He says, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus said, if someone steals from you, offer them something else. So as Christians, we don't curse people, period, period, write a period in the chat. We don't curse. So I curse that witch. I curse that. No, we don't do that. We don't curse witches. We don't curse pastors. We don't curse churches. Oh, you kick me out. I curse you. We don't send curses. We send blessings. That's what the Bible says. Bless and do not curse. So you don't need another interpretation, period. We don't send curses to people. That's demonic. That's Christian witchcraft or just witchcraft, period. All right. So bless those that are cursing you at work. Romans 12, 15 through 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with humble, with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Wow. Paul is straight rebuking, rebuking, rebuking. Some of you are like, this is me. He's rebuking. When Paul is saying rejoice with those that rejoice, he's saying, don't be a hater. Don't be jealous. When other people win, celebrate. Oh, I was waiting for that job and someone else, you know, my family got a better job that I've been waiting for years. Celebrate with them. Go to the dinner and say, I'm so glad for you. I know I didn't get the job. I know I've been waiting, but praise the Lord. Maybe you've been trying to get pregnant and your friend got pregnant and you're mad and you're angry. I get it. But God says, celebrate with them. Rejoice, even though your blessing hasn't come like that. You know, that statement, somebody sent me a t-shirt that said, if my neighbor is being blessed, then God is in the neighborhood. Like, just be, be excited. Don't be jealous. When someone else has more subs or views or followers than you, celebrate for them and then watch God bless you. So don't be jealous. Celebrate with other people. Rejoice with other people. Be mindful of one another. And then Paul says, associate with humble people. This actually translates to lowly people. Jesus did this, okay? Matthew, for example, was a tax collector. He's as low as they go. Do you know tax collectors were lower than prostitutes in consideration? They were low. They were tax. They basically turned on the Jews to collect taxes for the Roman Empire. Think about that. You turn on your own people. That was Matthew. He turned on his own people to collect taxes for the Roman Empire and then pocket some for himself. So the Jews thought very little of Matthew, yet he becomes one of Jesus' greatest disciples that writes the book of Matthew. Why? Because Jesus associated with lowly, humble people. All right, last verse here, and we're done, and we're going to pray. Romans 12, 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for evil. Let me say that again. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depend on, depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, 
Excuse me, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing so, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul is saying, listen, I know you're, I know you're really prideful and you want to, I'm going to get that guy back. He stole from me. He did this to me. Oh, you just wait and see. It's going to go, what goes wrong? Come just wait till I see you on the street. No, no, no. Paul says, that's not how we act anymore. Don't be drama. Don't have aught with other people. Live peaceably with all men. So go call your aunt that you've had drama with for 30 years. Go call your grandma that you've had drama with for the last month. Go call your parents. Go call your sister, your uncle. Have peace with all of them. Don't have aught. Don't be drama. Well, you don't know what they did to me. Don't, doesn't matter. You're a Christian now. Okay, Christ took on all that you've had to, all that you think is that he went through worse than you've gone through. You need to forgive and you need to get right with people. You need to live peaceably and make things right. And then he says, don't avenge yourselves because human nature is, I'm going to get them back. I hope, no, 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 we don't avenge ourselves. He says, God will avenge you. So don't worry about them. Trust me. If you're a child of God, somebody's talking bad about you and wronging you. Trust me, God will avenge them. I had a guy on YouTube that was making a bunch of videos about me, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you know what, Lord, I'm not going to respond. You'll avenge me. I'm not going to, I'm just going to bless him. I'm not going to send curses. I'm not going to make videos. I'm just going to love him, pray for him. And you're going to work it out. He made like three or four videos about me. And then the next couple days he said, I'm no longer making YouTube videos. I have a bunch of personal issues going on and I'm not making videos anymore. All right, Lord, you could avenge me. I don't need to avenge myself. The Lord says, look, you mess with my kids. I'll, I'll avenge them. So I've seen people who have come against me time and time again, crazy stuff happen to them. I don't want it. I don't like it, but God says, I'll avenge you. If somebody is coming against you, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So you don't need to try to take care of them, avenge yourself and defend yourself. God will avenge you. So they, people should be afraid when they're talking against the people of God, when they're talking against believers, vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. So what do we do to our enemies? We feed them. What do we do if our enemy, if, if our enemy, someone that hates us, that's trying to ruin our life, if they're thirsty, we give them a drink. And what does it do when we do that? We put coals of fire on their head. The Bible says heap coals of fire on their head. That means that they are basically feeling bad for their actions. They feel bad that they came against you. They feel bad that they took advantage of you because your niceness, you basically repay evil with good. And this is the command that Paul says, Lord, help us to do this in Jesus' name. Father, help us tonight to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord, help us to get in prayer. Help us to get in the word. God, strengthen us when people are talking bad about us at work or at school. Lord, help us to repay evil with good. I pray right now, Lord, that you would renew minds. I pray that you would heal bodies right now. Those that have pain in their body, I just pray, Lord, by your spirit and by your power, every single person listening to this would be healed in Jesus' mighty name. Lord, it is by your stripes we are healed. We thank you for your stripes. We thank you for what you did on the cross. We thank you for your anointing. We thank you for your power. I just pray, Lord, that you would begin to heal bodies right now from the top of heads to the soles of feet. Lord, release your healing anointing. Thank you, Jesus, for your healing power. Thank you that you are a God of miracles, that somebody is being healed in Jesus' name. Somebody is being restored right now in Jesus' name. I pray, Lord, for sicknesses, for illnesses. I pray, Lord, every unclean spirit would begin to leave right now. We command every unclean power to go back to the abyss in Jesus' name. You have no power. You have no place. You have no strength. The Lord rebukes you, Satan. You must go in Jesus' name. Go now 
Every foul spirit must go in Jesus' name. I pray, Lord, that you would bring healing and restoration. You would renew, you'd restore. Just breakthrough power be released. Fire of God be released. Anointing of the Holy Spirit be released. Every unclean spirit, you must go now in Jesus' name. The Lord rebukes you, Satan, up and off, up and out now. Get off of them in Jesus' name. Every curse, every spell, every incantation, every hex, broken in Jesus' name. Broken in Jesus' name. I pray, Lord, bring breakthrough right now. Bring deliverance right now. Bring healing right now. Someone said, I felt that. Praise the Lord. God, right now we pray, do what only you can do. I even pray, Lord, you'd humble us. Humble me, Father. I pray, Lord, humble me. If there's any ounce of pride in me that I don't even know is there, I pray you would remove it right now in Jesus' name. Lord, re remove any pride. Let me prefer others over myself. Let me wash people's feet. Let me be a bond servant, Lord. Let me be a servant to others, God. Let me lay my life down, uh, continue to for these people, Father. I pray, remove pride. If you have pride, this is your time right now to get right. You need to repent. You need to repent right now. Say, God, I'm sorry. I'm turning away. I I'm wrong. I need to change the way I think. I need to serve you. Father, right now, whoever is in this chat that has pride, I pray that we would not think greater of ourselves, but let's have a proper perspective. Don't think you're this great high and mighty if you're not. Be, be right about your evaluation. Paul says, I give you this warning to rightly evaluate yourself. We just pray right now in Jesus' name, pride's removed in Jesus' name. Father, send your mighty ministering angels around us, God, to guide and protect us, Lord, to deliver, to heal. Your, your word says that they carry the prayers, that they fulfill your work. You're ministering servants, so Father, I pray you'd release them now in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Revival Lifestyle Podcast. If you like what you heard, go to www.isaiahsaldivar.com for more content, and please follow me on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Isaiah Saldivar. See you next week.